From Dirty Spoon Media and WPVM in Asheville, it's The Second Helping. Extended conversations with some of our favorite guests. I'm Jonathan Ammons. If you haven't listened to the podcast Skillet, what the hell are you waiting for? Radio journalists Jen Nathan Orris and Cass Harrington have created a deep and moving and almost spiritual show that revolves around the kitchen. It's an astoundingly simple premise. They find a cook or a chef. It's usually someone that's not famous, mostly home cooks and folks out on the fringes. And they ask them to show them how to cook a meal that means something to them. Just one dish. They do it in their home kitchen. And while that sounds like a simple, fluffy cooking show, what comes out on the other end of the speaker is something much, much deeper. You'll probably tear up at one of their episodes. The guests usually do. Because what Jen and Cass have found with Skillet is that if you spend enough time with people in their homes, in their kitchens, learning how to make the things that they make to provide for the people that they love, it brings out a lot about a person. It tells you a lot about who they are, what matters to them, and what makes them tick. I caught up with Jen at the tail end of season one of Skillet, right before they started diving into the production of their second season, which is due out this month. I was really excited to talk to her about this show, because Jen and Cass are the best in the business when it comes to radio journalism in the WNC area. And just hearing how they make this show and what goes into a single episode is an incredible testament to why this medium matters and the ways we can tell you stories in this audio format that might not work as well any other way. Here's our conversation. Hi, Jen. Hey, Jonathan. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. What'd you do today? Well, let's see. I worked on some freelance articles um, about food and farms, and I did a little planning for Skillet Season 2. Skillet is our podcast um, that I'm really excited about to get going for Season 2. Where are you freelancing these days? I am a contributing editor at WNC Magazine, um, which is what I was working on today. It was a feature story for them. And then I make um, a podcast and radio show that airs on WNCW called Growing Local, which is funded by ASAP. We used to air that show, too. Oh, that's right. Yes, Dirty Spoon. I have to make a confession. The reason we stopped airing it was because it was too professional and made (laughs) us look bad. (laughs) You're so funny. (laughs) No, it's really true. Like It was one of those things where I was like... Wow, the pacing of this is like actual NPR, like actual news. Like, we, Too can't, real. we can't keep up with this. <laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> no, it was really. I found myself having to like take edits of it and like slow it down. Yeah. So that it would sound as amateur as what we were doing. <laughs> and then I felt like I was destroying what you were doing <laughs> as and, a result. <laughs> and the pacing is totally based on the like four or five minute chunk that exactly. I have on morning edition so I don't yeah. I don't have so much time to like really let my thoughts develop or a nice long juicy pause like I don't get any of that stuff totally. so it's like duck talk it's talk. just a bang 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 yeah kinda, it's a morning edition show yeah exactly yeah. and exactly. it fits in exactly with that format yeah yeah that was one of the things that I, I kept like slowing it down and putting music behind it and then I was like <laughs> I feel like I'm ruining this. Uh, <laughs> like I feel like I'm ruining fine. this really beautifully produced <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, they're a lot of fun to make, though, and they always take me out um, to different farms, and I love doing sound-rich reporting where I, like, record the sounds of the animals or the creek or, you know, whatever it is to help convey the story is, like, my passion and love, so I'm yeah. super grateful to ASAP um, that they fund this project. How long have you been doing that? This is our fourth year. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a really long time. Re- that's, like... 
epic in that's a freelance longer than relationship. Most restaurants last. Yeah, that's longer than most businesses last. Yeah, so that's awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Good. Um, when so when did you start getting the idea for Skillet? When did this pop yeah. up? So that was actually about one year ago this month. Um, I was sitting on my back porch and thinking about the most moving moments in my reporting job, working on food and farm reporting. And I realized that the moments that were most imbued with emotion was when people were talking about their favorite meals. So words like deviled eggs, all right two words, deviled eggs, could become a whole story if you just gave people a space to open up about it and really talk about how that relates to their family and their culture and their traditions and the changes in their life. Um, And so that all kind of came together that afternoon on the porch. And then at the same time, um, you know, I was getting a little frustrated with food media. Um, I think not just Asheville, but all over the country, there's an emphasis on a certain kind of chef and those same chefs end up in every magazine. And that's fine. Great chefs. Totally. Yeah. Um, but there are people who are left out of the conversation. And yeah. so I really wanted to create a place where more more voices could be heard. And like, what do I have? I have this microphone. I can hold it up to anybody. And so that was kind of part of the goal, too, was to provide a different space, a little less structured, um, where we could bring more people into the conversation. That's one of my favorite things about the show is that you don't focus on... I don't think you you have you haven't talked to a single like award nominated chef. Nope, you just in our talk- hearts they win our <laughs> the awards of yeah. our hearts. But yeah, no James Beard nominees. I mean, the closest is uh, is uh, Santiago won the Wing Wars a few yeah. times. Yeah, and we were so happy for him. <laughs> and um, you know, we're kind of seeing him get to the next little level of success. Um, yeah. Over the past, like, just couple months since the story aired. And so, but the focus was never, let's get the highest tier chef to talk about the most impressive things. Um, because there's all these other stories out there that are really heartfelt and um, just reflect different cultures in a way that, you know, I, to be honest, I just felt like the sa- similar stories were being told. And I was writing the same stories over yeah. and over again. Um, and so I just wanted to broaden the conversation as best I could. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, I mean, the main reason we wanted to have you guys on the show is because I I feel like with Dirty Spoon, what we try to do is we like to say we don't focus what's on the table, we focus on what's under the table. Mm -hmm. And I think the coolest part about listening through season one of your show is like, yeah, it's a cooking show in the sense that you're in the kitchen cooking, but 99% of the conversation is not about what's going in that pan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of other uh, things that get brought up by that. And I wonder if that was, was that the intention going in or was yeah, that, definitely. yeah. How did you come to that, this format? Um, so I was thinking kind of on two levels, one about, um, kind of cooking sounds as a soundtrack, right? So I, we don't really have a budget for music. So I was thinking like, what is it that moves a story forward? What do I really like to hear? And cooking sounds are amazing. Um, just like the sizzle in the pan and all of that, but it needs to be more than just add this ingredient here, you know, like that's not a compelling half an hour of listening. Um, and I just felt like food has this way of putting people in a really tender space, uh, where they're willing and able and present and 
can really open up about things that matter to them. So I was thinking, let's have the cooking be a soundtrack to these deeper conversations about things like class and race, um, family traditions, like, you know, things that are really wonderful to talk about and sometimes a little difficult, but that by cooking alongside with someone um, and hearing their stories, it like sparks a different level of memories. So I, it really, yeah, I never really pictured it as like a cooking show, but more of cooking to facilitate deep conversations. Well, and that's what happens in your kitchen anyway. Right, exactly. Like everybody just hangs out in the kitchen. Exactly. And, and that's where most of this, the meaningful conversations you have in your life happen in someone's kitchen. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying that as a broad general statement. No, I think so. For I, me, at least, yeah. that's the case. Me too. Yeah. 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 Um, and if I could just jump in and add a little oh, bit totally. to the origin story. Yeah. Um, so I was having all these all these thoughts about food media, and that's uh, right around the same time when my co-host Cass Harrington reached out to me. Um, and she was an established radio reporter who was in Illinois, and she was moving to Asheville. Um, and I was just really excited because there's not very many radio reporters here. Right. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of the only one for a really long time. So I was thrilled that Cass was coming, and really just wanted to collaborate and so she had some similar views on just ways that we can make food media more inclusive and she was so gung-ho about my weird idea about like a cooking show that's also really deep and so we just kind of set off on our collaboration and it's been a great partnership awesome yeah i know you have a big background in food media does she have much of a background in covering food not food so she um has been a reporter for a long time right. and um tends to focus on community issues um issues of race and class and then just kind of general reporting she was um a morning edition host for various npr stations so she has kind of like a newsy background but no real background in food uh which was actually really exciting because she was able to approach it um, from this totally different perspective, not having written like five food articles a week for 10 years, which right. is kind of where I'm coming from. And so it was all very fresh to her. And so it was cool to see it through her eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have a, a long background in food. Yeah. Media. I've been doing this a while. I know. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> A long time. Um, and I, I often wonder, like, how does this keep my interest, right? Especially when you're writing in a small market about the same people often over and over again. And um, I think it's because food touches on almost every aspect of life um, that you can talk about the environment. You can talk about history. You can talk about science, uh, community, culture. Like, it kind of touches on everything through the lens of food. And then food is also just a part of everybody's lives. So this is something we connect with um, on a daily basis, and it's a way to get into conversations um, and talk about things that are um, just kind of broad, you know, and it's like a jumping off point. Yeah. When did you start writing, uh, doing food writing? Uh, it was about 10 years ago, right, like shortly after I moved here. Did you start with Mountain Express or who did you, yeah. where did you start? Yeah, with Mountain Express. Yeah, and I remember you doing the gardening and, and all that section. And yeah, that was really fun. I was just like, why don't we have a food, like we had a food section at the local All Weekly, but we didn't have like a gardening farming section. And I was like, well, let's do this. Right. I'll do it for free <laughs> as part of my other existing jobs there. Yeah. Uh, and so I did for a long time and they're still doing that series, you know, doing that, um, that section every week. And I, I think it's really wonderful. And now you write for that section, which is pretty cool in the main food section mostly. Yeah. And now it's, yeah, it's, I, I feel like I, I just interviewed Mackenzie Lunsford as well. Oh, great. And I, I feel like I've, I've, you know, 
just kind of tucked under the shadows of all these people that kind of set off really good food media. Because I, I don't think every city has that. Like, yeah. Uh, one of the things I talked about with McKinsey was the idea of like how much food media shifted from being about criticism to being about actual journalism yeah. and actually documenting what happens in our city and how crucial and important that is and also how like how many issues there are in the way we eat and what we eat and how we eat and who is feeding us mm -hmm. and we that can get swept under the rug in a lot of cities because yeah. of the way food media is built and it's I feel really proud of our food media system that it's not just stories about what restaurant is hot? Check out this James Beard winning <laughs> chef. And yeah. we have all those things going on, but we've got a lot of media that's more revolvent around what's what makes those things meaningful mm -hmm. and why they matter and not just about what's cool and hip. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Definitely. And that, that, that's been happening more, uh, I would say, over the past three years, three yeah. to five years, that's really increased, definitely. Um, and, I, and I see the scene, like, really growing a lot, the food media world here. Yeah. Yeah. When did you get into uh, audio journalism? Yeah, so my, uh, my internship in college was with the NPR station near my college in upstate New York. And so I kind of came to audio and public radio because there were no real podcasts back then, um, a while back. <laughs> uh, and I loved it because I didn't have to choose one thing to study. So my friends who were going on into academics or the working world, they had to choose one profession, one area of focus. And I said, I can't choose. So public radio let you discover whatever you're interested in. Um, and so I was really excited about that. And I, I just didn't know what I wanted. So I wanted to learn about everything. And I wanted a job where I'd get paid to learn because I couldn't really afford grad school. And so journalism, you get paid to ask people questions, you learn things, you write about them, and then you do it again the next day um, with somebody different. So that was back in, let's see, like 2003. And then I went, uh, I did that for a few years, worked there at the NPR station in Albany, New York. Went to grad school in Maine for audio documentary skills, which is kind of really what I focus on now is going out um, into the field and recording sounds. And so those were all things I learned in my grad school. So program. you went to grad school for audio? Yeah, just one semester. <laughs> That's incredible. So they had a, a grad program. It's uh, now part of the Maine College of Art, but it was called the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. And it was pretty low cost and it was only six months so I could see a future where I did that and then found another job right away so it wasn't like as big of an undertaking as grad school was that what you majored in in college was journalism or I was did I did mean? American studies uh, which oh. was actually I mean it sounds like kind of a maybe a lame major <laughs> like not very challenging but it was really challenging and um, it taught me to see connections between things that might seem different so by studying an historical period based on its music and its food and uh, political cartoons and journals from people's everyday lives can be just as interesting and meaningful as the battles where they took place in the names of the generals yeah um, so that was kind of my college background awesome. yeah that's yeah. really cool. Where did you, I guess we should go back and yeah. just look at, where are you from originally? Um, I was born in Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, which is pretty rural, uh, and lived there until uh, like the beginning of elementary school, and then moved up north to Albany, New York. And um, 
yeah, just went to school up there. And so I, my accent is from nowhere because uh, uh, when I got to public school, no one could understand my Louisiana accent. And they sent me to speech therapy paid for by my public school Oh wow! because my teachers couldn't understand me, uh, which is kind of a bummer because I, I bet I had a beautiful voice and I'll never really know it. Well, now you just have a voice that's literally trained for radio. Yeah, I get, yeah, which is good. I mean, thank you. You know, I appreciate that speech therapy, fourth grade stuff, yeah. but uh Yeah, I wish I sounded like I was from somewhere, you know? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if that's always a good thing. (laughs) My southern accent pokes out all the time, and most of my voice is just vocal fry, so it's... (laughs) I feel like you're doing good. Okay, thanks. You're doing good. Thanks, Sean. You're you're making it easy for everyone to listen. Um, Yeah, so... and. You grew up in New York. Where did you go to college? Where was your Um, bachelor's from? Yes, Gidmore College, um, which was like Saratoga Springs, New York, in between Albany and Canada, basically. How did you wind up down here? Uh, Kind of on a whim. So I had finished grad school, and I was looking for a place where there weren't other radio reporters. Um, Because the way you find jobs when you're freelancing NPR is you need a story that no one else can give them. So stories from Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, there was no reporter out here. And, you know, my mom had been telling me, move to Asheville since I was in high school. And I said, Mom, I don't even know this place. I've never been there. Um, but How did she know Asheville? She had lived in Chapel Hill and came out to Asheville like in the 70s to go to the Biltmore back then. Isn't that funny? And it was just like, she's it's so rinky-dink. Um, it's just this family's home. So she had vacationed here when she was in college. Um, and then she said, it's just like, it seems like the place for you. And if you know how you don't listen to your mom? Right. <laughs> and you're like, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Uh, well, 10 years later, she was right. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, my husband, Rich, and I uh, just packed up the Honda with whatever we had and we found a furnished sublet that was really really cheap it was just like somebody's converted garage in montford and it was furnished and we were like well let's let's try this it's cheaper than austin or portland or the other cities we were considering where there were a lot of radio reporters um and i said i think we can do this here so we just packed everything up and moved down and that was now over 11 years ago Wow. What did yeah. you do when you first moved here? What were, what were your first gigs down here? Uh, I was pitching stories to NPR uh, with moderate success. Uh, <laughs> some, some landed, some didn't, but that's to be expected. So I was doing that. And then um, I was editing a program out of WUNC in Chapel Hill called The Story with Dick Gordon. And it was a really great show. They would just send me like an hour and a half of audio and I'd cut it down to 40 minutes from Asheville, from this little converted garage. Um, and boy, was that fun. That was so fun. (laughs) That was just like my favorite job, just in there with headphones, listening, getting real deep on humanity, but I also don't have to like engage, you know? Yeah. You were taking someone else's work and turning it into something. Yeah. What did that teach you about how you're producing your own material? Oh my gosh, so much. So first of all, to stick with it. So like you get this big chunk of tape, right? It's over an hour. Our skillet recordings are sometimes four hours of tape. Oh yeah. And, um... Just how to turn that into something compelling that has a narrative arc uh, where you feel the emotions of the person who's speaking. Uh, Just practice. 
gosh, you could do that every day for the rest of your life and still need more practice on yeah. on that. And so, and plus just like basic audio skills, reinforcing that, Pro Tools, all that, um, which I find incredibly Knowing when fun. to put the pause in yeah. the breaks and everything else. Yeah. Cutting out the little ums and uhs and mouth noises and just making everybody sound their best, which I really love. It's like you take this thing and it's kind of raw and like maybe the ideas are all over the place um, and maybe the speech patterns are all over the place, but you can kind of, distill it down to its essence. Yeah. And I love that process. Yeah. And I can imagine like working on someone else's material, it had to be a fresh set of ears because you weren't, it wasn't your voice. It wasn't your interview. You hadn't already had the conversation. You were listening to a fresh conversation and getting to work with that. That has to be wonderful. It was so fun. I was just like letting my curiosity guide me. So it's like, well, what question do I need answered at this point? Oh, they get to it later on. So let's move it up to the front. So this question is answered and we know why the next thing's so important. Yeah. 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 And uh, when, when you're auto editing audio like that, do you, do you restructure conversations at all? I do. Um, I did some with that show, but with Skillet, Almost everything is restructured um, because I'm trying to create that narrative arc and place the stories at compelling moments when I know people are going to be really hooked from the last thing that happened and maybe make this story a bridge to the next story. Um, So our process is kind of intense. Like we come home with about four hours of raw tape. And, and you're um, cutting this down to 30 minutes. 30 usually. minutes, yeah. Uh, it may not be a super sustainable model for the future. <laughs> We're trying to awesome streamline. Um, but because the format of the show is letting the, the storyteller drive the conversation, sometimes it takes a whole hour to figure out what someone really wants to talk about. Yeah. And so we try to give them that space to figure it out. And we're trying to do a little bit more of that ahead of time on the phone before we get there. Um, but, yeah, taking that four hours to take, coming home, I take handwritten notes, um, which usually takes, like, at least eight hours to handwrite all these notes. Um, and then I listen through and make cuts and make flashcards. I always do, like, color-coded flashcards to tell me what parts of the story. And because we're talking to people who mostly have never been interviewed or maybe been interviewed once – their stories are just like all over the place. So yeah. pieces of information that we need earlier on need to be brought up to the front. And they're um, probably not letting things out in the beginning because they're not used to having a microphone shoved under totally. their face. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about helping people feel comfortable, which is, I think, why our recordings are so long. Um, and then it leaves us with a big job when we get back uh, to edit, for sure. Totally. No, I mean, well, that's. I feel like that's 90% of like good radio is happens on the editing floor and it's about just getting as much material as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's yeah. Cause you can see it in the show cause it flows really easily. And I, I, so years ago I was looking at doing a video web series called shooting guns with chefs <laughs> where we would just go out into a, go over to a farm, somebody's farm, highlight the farmer, highlight the chef. And then, I've never met a chef or a farmer that doesn't have a gun. <laughs> and then yeah. we just talk about their guns, blast off a bunch of rounds, cook for each other, and that'd be the the show, just yeah. like a good southern redneck boy thing. And uh, one of the things that one of the video producers I was working with kept telling me was like, you do realize like you're probably not going to have enough good footage to put together a half an hour regularly. Yeah. Like you ma- might want to cut this back to like 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that just means we need to shoot more footage. Mm-hmm. Like, does it, isn't that the way that we're supposed to do this is just get more material and surely 
I mean, are you saying that the person's going to be boring? Because <laughs> I'm not going to pick boring people to talk. And no one is that boring. Like, if you yeah. leave a microphone on long enough with anyone, you get a compelling story. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what's interesting about the way that you guys have staged your show is that no matter who's on this show, you're getting compelling narratives out of them. You're getting interesting stories because you're talking to them about things that matter in their intimate private spaces, their kitchens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's And it's very interesting what comes up in those conversations. So there's been so many times where all of a sudden the conversation pivots and we're talking about a memory that we didn't know about, or we're talking about, a point and a turning point in someone's life um, that we didn't even know was an issue for them. Um, so I don't know if you remember the episode with Bruce Ukan, um, the Mayan chef from yeah. Kentucky. We had no idea that he had this chapter in his life with substance abuse. We just didn't know. It wasn't in our research. It wasn't anywhere else that we found online. And so we thought, well, let's go talk about lima beans and Mayan cooking. And all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about, tell us about, you know, tell your life, what were you doing at this age? Like, where were you? All those kind of sense memories. And he starts talking about this New Year's Eve that changed his life where he was, I mean, he almost died. And he tells us that story and we're just kind of floored. We're like, where did that come from? We're not prepared. What, where do we go next? And it just kind of goes to show you that people make food, they think about food, they share memories and it just goes in really unexpected places. But if we hadn't already spent three hours with him in his home and his kitchen, I don't think we would have heard that story. Yeah. That you need all that time. You need all that time. The in-between stuff that, like, is not good enough to go in the episode or you, – you need that time to really settle in with people to make half an hour of compelling stuff. Yeah. And and that's the uh, – that's one thing that stands out to me about the show is, like, when it first came out, I was thinking, like, oh, cool. Like, I trust these people because they're legitimate – radio journalist, so I'm going to tune in. But the idea of another long-format interview show just wasn't initially interesting to me mm-hmm. until I realized by, like, the third interview, I was like, every one of these has a starkly emotional turn at some point yeah. and, like, really digs beneath the skin of the person that that's talking. Like, they're, it's it's really raw. Yeah. And it's it's really wild how you can pull... I mean, it's really fertile soil to be pulling from to begin with, mm-hmm. but then just how easy those those deep, deep roots pull from that soil yeah. is really fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's a credit to our storytellers for being really open and emotionally present and willing to go there and talk about... People have said that they talked about things they've never said before, and it's because you open up that space and you let people direct the conversation, which is so against like traditional radio rules where you've got a list of questions and you're going to cut people off if they go over their time. It's like a totally opposite perspective of just like, let's see when, uh, what unfolds and something emotional almost always does. Or something funny. Some, some of them are really funny. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Do you think some of that's because a lot of these people haven't had a lot of chances to tell their stories to a large audience? Yeah, I do think so. I think that when you talk to someone who's on the interview circuit, which a lot of um, like high-level chefs are, they have their story. You ask them, like, oh, how'd you get into food? Well, they're not going to think back and really be visceral in that memory of They've already cooking, got their elevator pitch. They have their story, right? Yeah. And they've, they've, they've said it a million times, and it's a good story, but it's not fresh. 
Yeah. Uh, and you're not, they're not telling it in the moment. You can't, like sometimes in these episodes you can hear people remember things. You can hear them like be in this memory. And yeah. I think when you're talking to people who've told their story many times, they're just not, they're just not in that space. Um, which doesn't mean it's a bad interview or not interesting. It's just different when you're talking to people who are never interviewed. And um, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's really different. Yeah. Does the process of like being in the kitchen with them and them doing something else, what does that do to that process? Oh my gosh, so much. So I really think that when you're chopping vegetables, when you're smelling familiar smells, when you're talking about the person who taught you how to do something, it puts you in this tender emotional space where you're open. It feels just like what you were saying. It feels like sitting around the kitchen telling great stories, a place that really feels comfortable and home, no matter what your definition of home is, it, it, it has that feeling of togetherness, comfort, all of those things. And so in the act of chopping and smelling and tasting, because we sit down to eat, um, it, it brings back different kinds of memories, and, and it's much more like sense-based. People can mm -hmm. tell you what it smelled like, uh, who they were with, their what the color of their grandma's house dress, like stuff. People just get really deep in their emotions. And I think the cooking process puts them there in a different way than showing up in a room, two people talking, you know, also great fodder for a lot of fun and really deep conversations. But the act of doing something together is really powerful. Yeah, I was thinking back to like uh, your interview with Santiago Vargas of uh, of yeah, out of the blue out Peruvian of the blue. fusion yeah. cuisine, <laughs> and how like that goes from just uh, bilingual. Is, does Cass speak fluent Spanish? She's yeah, she's fluent. That's in incredible. Spanish. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so wonderful. Yeah, because she like beautifully translates like a, a sentence of his mm -hmm. about like poetic thing about chopping onions it was so deep right yeah and then it it kind of flows into a inevitable conversation about his family and like the daughter that he left behind yeah. and that brings up a whole immigration issue which it's awesome because you guys never get overtly political about things but you definitely are touching on issues that are really relevant yeah and really right at at surface skin level and you're you're just able to cut into those a little bit and, and really bring up bring up some fresh blood on these issues. Is that is that something that you look at when you're picking who you're going to interview? Is that because you do have a very racially diverse um, crop of of interviewees? Yeah, it's something we think about that balance, um, and we let people drive the conversation they want to have. So I think one of the times when we realized that was with Bruce Ukan. Uh, we thought we might talk about immigration. He immigrated from Mexico. Um, and we, we thought like, oh, this this could be interesting. I'd be interested in perspective. We talked for 45 minutes about that. And we could just tell this isn't, it doesn't speak to him as a topic. Yeah. It's not where he wants to go. So let's not shoehorn not him it. into talking about immigration. That's not, that's not what he wants to talk about. So all of that got cut in favor of the emotional moment he wanted to share. And so I do think it touches on really difficult topics from the perspective of the person who's lived that experience just on their own, their own personal take on things. So giving people space to talk about political issues if that's what they want to talk about, but also not saying, all right, we're going to corner you in this little way and like because you come from this background, you're going to speak on behalf of everyone on this issue. We just kind of follow them. And people want to talk about these things. But we do 
we do plan ahead. So like we spend um, time on somebody's social media feed before we reach out to them and say like, are they bringing up challenging topics just on their own because they're interested in them? Yeah. Um, and we try to go with people who are outspoken about an issue, but it's got to be the issue that they choose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's definitely a goal is these deep, hard conversations through the vehicle of something that sounds like so fun and light and happy cooking show, right? And then you don't know until you love, fall in love with the storyteller what is so deep and meaningful to them. Yeah. Were there interviews that you cut entirely from, from this series? No, we kept them all. Um, awesome. Yeah, we kept them all. And uh, some of it was like, gosh, if I was an editor at NPR and uh, you know, edited other places, I would say kill this story. You know, this is, it's not compelling enough. Kill this story. But uh, I feel like you spend enough time, you take that four hours and you can find something compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I don't know. I think that's my favorite thing about the podcast world is that it's a very different way of approaching radio because it's not stuff that has to be out. You're not on a four hour deadline. Right. <laughs> so you can turn around and like really create something really interesting and I mean, for me, like I've always been a freelancer, so I've always had that time and flexibility. So I've always been able to, to, to dig a lot deeper in that soil, and so this just felt like a really easy home for me to start building radio in that perspective. But if I was having to turn that around on a four-hour deadline, I don't know how you could make radio that was that compelling. <laughs> and it's really it floors me when I do hear stuff that's that good and that quick. When you listen to like the daily. Right, or, or there aren't they amazing? Good lord, how yeah. do you get stories that deep and meaningful and rich? And but yeah, I think that, that we're in a really rich era right now for this. Do you think that? Do you think podcasts are getting oversaturated? You know, it's a good question, and I think there are there is a limit to how many times you can listen to two people talk in a room when they have not planned anything. There's no yeah. point to the conversation. They're just chatting and like talking, of, you know, and there's a place for that. You get your friends and your family to listen and like you have your fans. But I, I think the two people in a room interviewing and then you just like put the whole interview up on your podcast feed. I wouldn't be sad if that no, fell away right now. <laughs> But, but this is different because it's part of a broader show, right? There's right. also going to be music and, like, you know, there's, like, other stuff going on. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but I guess I'm thinking of, like, the really raw stuff, you know, where you're just like, man, you didn't. Like, I, I don't know if I care enough about these two people to listen for an hour and a half. You know, there's podcasts yeah. that are, like, three hours long of just two people talking. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sad if that field narrowed down to just, like, some – you know, a big handful, like a lot of people who are doing that really, really well. But some of the like, let's just shoot the shit for an hour with my friends. And then I think the whole world is going to be interested in it. Uh, there's a lot of those podcasts. Does it feel like chasing windmills to be diving into this already oversaturated field, trying to produce intensely edited and detail oriented productions? I mean, it's definitely a challenge. I've wondered, yeah, I've thought a lot about like where, where's our place in the podcast landscape. And I think because we do sound rich reporting, so you hear the sounds of the kitchen, you're in a place. I think that's a little bit unique. Um, and I also like this idea that podcasts are big money. 
uh, is a total joke. And I, I don't think we've ever made a penny. We paid more than we've ever yeah. made on Dirty Spoon. I mean, to be honest, we lose money every episode. Yeah. Uh, just paying for the food that people cook with, like hosting fees, whatever. Not to mention, like, you know, it's not it's not a moneymaker. People see cereal and they think like, oh, my gosh, there's money in podcasting. We've, we've not found that yet. <laughs> right. But um, I do think there's room for innovative ideas. And I do think there's an incredible support system for people who are really earnestly trying to make things. So, like, there's a much broader online community um, internationally for podcasting than there used to be. And I think that's wonderful. Um, and I just think the medium is ready to evolve a little bit. Is there anything that scares you about food me media these days? Getting it wrong. Just like every journalist. Like, I worry, like, is this exactly right? Can I check this three different ways? Am I? And part of it, when you're telling people's personal stories, is, you know, am I really conveying what how they feel you know yeah. is this truthful to their lived experience and i think that's the thing with skillet that i'm most afraid of and cautious about is like this is not my story i don't want to impose my beliefs or my views or my perspective on this person telling their story so i think that's the thing i worry about most is is this true to the person who told us the story and are we being good stewards um of of their personal experiences are we being truthful yeah when I when I see your show, I see that it's kind of a response to a lot of you. You said it was a mm -hmm. response to a lot of food journalism that's out these days. Is there anything overall in the food scene that you that worries you? You know, I, I'm actually pretty hopeful. I feel like change is happening. Uh, it worries me when I see people like me writing pieces about stories that are not of their culture. So, like, there are so many topics that I just don't feel qualified to write about and that there are other people who are in a better position to share their personal experiences. And it even could be, like, an ingredient. I'm trying to think of what story I saw fly by on the Internet. And it was something like this particular variety of mango or whatever. It was not super deep, but you could tell that the person didn't have the personal knowledge and background to like really tell that story as well as somebody who has had a lived experience that relates to it. So I worry about my role in that and like not, I guess just like I acknowledge my position as a middle-class white woman um, and that there are other perspectives out there and I would like to see more writers of color doing stories that I've been assigned, you know? Yeah. This was one of the things that I actually really struggled with when, I was assigned a story about sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. And my initial response was like, can we maybe find a woman to write this story? Yeah. But it was a female editor that assigned it. And she was like, no, we want to have diverse voices. And we can't just have women writing about sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. We need to have men's voices in there, too, because that's part of being inclusive. And I was like, OK, that's fine. But I still submitted the article with the headline, John Mansplained Sexual Harassment <laughs> in the Restaurant Industry, because I still felt so out of my element being assigned to cover this topic. Right. And I think like that's that's kind of terrifying overall, because I'm a cisgendered white male, and no matter what I'm covering, I'm approaching it from a position of ignorance and dominance. Yeah. And that's... Mm. But if, at the same time, if I didn't cover it, I wouldn't be learning anything. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I always wrestle with that and, like, when you're appropriating something and when you're 
just seeking to understand something. Right. And, you know, I think I think part of the problem with that um, that I've found locally and being a magazine editor, there are not a lot of writers and co- writers of color in this region. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's going to it's 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 tricky. It's like everybody has a perspective that they can bring to their writing and that you can also just provide a platform for other people's perspectives and that's okay. But what I would really like to see change in food media is more writers of color working for the bigger outlets. Um, and I think that's happening nationally. And we just need to put in the work here. So like something we'd really love to do with Skillet is partner with a youth media organization. And oh, cool like hand the microphone over to a student and say like let's go record you and your mom cooking something here's some tips here's how we're going to help you uh do you want to come edit this with us like let's do a part of it together and sort of with the idea of being like making this really special story that only this person can tell um but then also just training more people in media i think is really important so that hopefully new people can be writing these stories that I'm still assigned. Um, yeah. And that's, I, 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 I'm hopeful that that's happening slowly over time. Does it worry you that because of the way the podcast craze has boomed and because of the way m- digital media is going, that any swing and dick feels like they can contribute? A little bit. <laughs> and, uh, cause you're, you're highly trained on these. Right. That's the, that's the thing. I've had this access, right? Like, yeah. And I say that as the swinging dick that just walked in <laughs> being like, I can do this. I I'm going to fake it till I make it. Like, I have no yeah. business being in this industry. <laughs> I faked my way into this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough to say because I do feel like I've had opportunities. Heck, I even own a microphone. That right there is access that other people don't have. Right. Right. And so that was part of my thinking with the show is just like, well, what – there's all these problems in the world. I'm just this one tiny cog. Uh, what can I do? I was like, well, I got this microphone. Let's just hold it up to people who aren't heard enough. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's a starting point with the eventual goal of more people telling their own stories. And I think, you know, if that means less work for me, that's totally fine. Uh, I can do my own thing. I've got lots of other avenues. Um, but I, yeah, it, it, we're in a really interesting like bridge period, I think. Yeah. Um, getting to this n- next realm of food media. This brings up something interesting too, is I was wondering like when, when I got into media, I thought like, awesome, here's a place where I can have a voice. Hmm. And it was like, I got things I want to say. Uh-huh. And then within the first like two years of the job, I realized I need to shut the fuck up because there are a lot of people that have more important, interesting things to say. And my job is suddenly to give them a voice right? and yeah. to put their story out there. And then that's when it clicked for me that I was like, oh, journalism is not about your opinion. It's not about you at all. It is about purely being a mouthpiece for these other communities and these other people and whoever you're writing the story about. And it was just one of those things of like what I found myself doing was so much different than what I thought I was getting into. And I'm wondering like for you, even with the series or with your career trajectory overall, how did you see this going and how is it different from that? Mm. So talking about voice, um, I, ha- I was really attracted to journalism because it wasn't my voice. I am super not interested in what I, in my like what I have to say and like why the world should listen. I just don't think it's very relevant. But what I liked 
about journalism was you could talk to anybody, ask them anything, and then just kind of like lift up their thoughts. You know, it doesn't have to be like my thought. I don't know. You know, I was like 18 years old. I don't really have any thoughts. I don't have anything deep to say, but I can hold up this microphone and someone might tell me something amazing. So thinking about voice, and I also think it may be a little bit of a generational thing. Like I see younger people um, who are really into like their point of view and their voice and developing that. Uh, And there's place for that in media for sure. That that side has never appealed to me, like even a tiny bit. Um, (laughs) But talking about uh, what is what what I thought it would be like and what it turned out to be. Uh, specifically with Skillet, I thought it was going to be this super happy-go-lucky like cooking show, right? Like you look at Food Network, everyone's happy and smiling. Like even you know Anthony Bourdain's shows, like it's like really just positive, you know. And um, and so that's what I had envisioned was this like love fest, right? Yeah. Uh, with cooking sounds, and then we got there, and like people are telling us these stories we weren't prepared for. That was the biggest thing that surprised me was how emotional these conversations got, and that people were willing to open up in these ways I hadn't expected or prepared for, and that it ended up being a very emotional show. I, I thought the emotion would be happy, like that would be the yeah. driving theme was like happiness and joy. And instead, I think it's like struggles and triumphs, you know, and we get to the happy parts. But uh, that's that's what surprised me most, how it was different. Was it like a little darker than you'd anticipated, yeah, darker than I'd anticipated in a good way? I was happy to see that because yeah. it's compelling to listen to. But it wasn't what I was expecting at all. Did you ever try to push back against that or did you just take it as it came? I was just kind of open to whatever people wanted to put into the microphone, you know, yeah. follow their lead. Um, I yeah, I I was okay. I I actually season two, my goal is to not have to not make so many people cry. I don't. <laughs> that was never part of the show, of like the vision of this thing was just to like make people cry in front of microphones. So I've been trying to like consciously dial that back within myself and how I ask questions. And so we'll see how that goes for season two because some of it is compelling. But like that was never my goal was like bring people to an emotional brink and then record it. <laughs> That surprised me. <laughs> Have you got people saying, no, I don't want to come on Skillet because I don't want to cry on microphone? Uh, I do encourage uh, future storytellers to listen to past episodes uh, before they say yes. Yeah. And say, like, it's a little different from other food shows. Like, maybe take a listen and see if this is right for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, and that, Yeah, that's tricky ground. Like, I know I've I've done a couple profiles on people and i don't i don't fluff my profiles at all i typically write pretty mm-hmm. honestly about yeah. people's lives because i think that's the more compelling story and uh i've had a couple of people that have been really upset with the fact that i i i did go and touch on those spaces mm. have you had anybody that was that felt like they were that you went too far i wonder that question all the time um, I'm constantly thinking, is this too far? Should we cut this out? Almost every moment where someone has cried, I've cut out like at least 15 seconds of just crying sounds. Cause like, this is too much. Um, and now I've forgotten your question. Please tell me. <laughs> oh, no, I was out. just asking if, 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 if anyone had ever. Oh, if anyone has ever come back to me and said that. Yeah. So, um, I think about that a lot, but I've not heard that from storytellers. We try to stay in touch as best we can. Um, there was one storyteller 
who was my first interview, the one that I did by myself, who said like, ooh, a little bit of a vulnerability hangover when she saw um, all the social media pr- promotion. Oh, um, wow. which is Which is tricky, right? Like you spend months making a thing, you gotta let people know. But at the same time, this is somebody's face that you're posting like over and over again, you know, and yeah. trying to be sensitive to that and uh, be thoughtful. Um, in the way that we presented on social media. So no one has ever come back to us and said, hey, I'm not comfortable with what happened. Because they, yeah. all, they all know what they said, right? You can hear it. And we didn't make it up, you know? And I think, like, maybe the way people might have responded to yours was because they saw themselves so, tr- so like, they saw their truth in your writing and maybe didn't mean to go so far in what they told you, Yeah, you know, less about like how you portrayed them, but more about like where they went with their vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. It always makes me question if I got it right. I mean, I worry about that all the time. I worry about that like every day. Yeah. It's a little more forgiving in audio than it is in print. I feel like because it's literally their voice. I agree. So even if it is heavily edited, People are like, well, that's my voice saying that. Right. Like I said those words. Yeah. And I, th- yeah, you're, I think you're right. It's harder in print for sure to get that across. And even a quote like, I, you know, it's like sometimes there's there's doubt when you can't hear it. But I've read your profiles. I think everybody I, – I don't, I don't see a problem with them. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I was just wondering because like it, it is such a sensitive thing to take people's stories into your hands. Yeah. Because – you want to be truthful, you want to be real, you want to be honest. And that's all reliant on them being right. truthful, honest, and real. And I think that that's just a really... And, and it's all perception, too. I think that that's a, it's a very difficult thing to, to process. The fact that you're perceiving something a certain way and it may not be the way it is. Yeah. I, I worry about my own writing in that way all the time. Yeah. Like every every single thing, even the smallest thing, I'm like, is this, is this true? Is this the truth? Gosh, it's hard. You never know. And what does that even mean? Yeah, right? <laughs> and so at least with profiles and things like Skillet, I think the, the person holds their truth, right? And so I just convey it in the way that is true to them as the best I can. And yeah. I do think it's easier with audio where you're working with somebody's voice and like there's no question, like, they said those words but there's so much that can be done in editing it's i i worry about it all the time yeah. that's my number one worry i think with skillet is is this truthful yeah yeah and like you said about how you, you're trying to make it so that your guests don't cry as much um i was thinking like yeah you don't want your guests to cry but you want the audience to cry right <laughs> right like, yeah i know that's that's when we know we've done a really good Dirty Spoon episode is when someone's like, oh, it made me cry. Because you're like, yes, (laughs) we got to that emotional pinnacle. Yeah. We brought you there. Yeah. And, and, you know, I am happier when I, like, yeah, seeing when listeners get emotional is, like, really powerful and gratifying. Uh, Sometimes I just worry about the storyteller being. Don't you feel like you have to get the storyteller to that point of vulnerability, though, to really make something be that impactful? I think you're probably right. That you need to go there, and otherwise it does turn into like happy go lucky cooking show. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you do kind of need to get there, and it's just all about consent. Like I really, I want enthusiastic consent from every one of our storytellers, uh, and they should know what they're getting into. And if they're concerned or if they're unsure, we're not a good match. Yeah. You know, um, people really have to like really be into it. Um, for us to be a good match on the show. And I think about it as consent because this is these are really intimate conversations. 
you know, and I want people to be emotionally prepared and then not emotionally troubled afterwards, you yeah. know, like, okay, so we hit stop on the recording, we go home, you know, eat, I eat with, with my family and then like, what about this person who's just shared this like really intense moment? Does that hang on with them for dates? Like, I don't, I don't really know, but I do think we need to, yeah, it's, it's a really tough balance. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of the thing that's really interesting and I think part of the reason why you get such raw responses or at least my assumption is they're cooking for you. They're showing you something that is intimate to them to begin with. That's part of their practice. That's part of their family life. That's part of their heritage. That's part of their growing up. They're, you're in their kitchen. I assume you do this at their kitchens. Usually. Almost always in people's homes ki- home kitchens. Or yeah. sometimes they come to my house. Yeah. And so they're there in their kitchen. In their kitchens with cooking like. for you. Yeah, there are family pictures on the wall, you know, all, you know, grandma's spoon, whatever. It's like all right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's really invasive. It's personal. Yeah. Yeah. How do you prep them for, I mean, I assume you have to, that's part of the reason why you have to keep the mic going so long just to get them used to you being in their environment. Yeah. It is really personal. And in terms of prep, I mean, I think part of why we let people drive the conversation. So like you pick the dish that's meaningful for you. You pick the topics that you want to speak about um, is to kind of be more respectful of that privacy. And I think it works better in the end when you do it that way um, to let them drive it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's deeply personal. And I do think being in the kitchen puts people in a different emotional space so that when you are talking, they go deeper than they might in, in a different situation. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. What's next? What's what's next for Skillet? Yeah. Uh, well, Cass and I are working on season two. We have our first interview of the season scheduled for the end of this month, which is very exciting. And uh, again, not a chef. He's uh, a man that we just know, like through just met different ways in that small Asheville way. Um, and he is from Oaxaca, Mexico, and so he can speak a little bit about that. And he wanted to make mole, and we're like, cool, we'll make mole. He wanted to talk about that, and um, I think he said gentrification was the topic that he wanted to bring up. And huh. so we'll see where that goes. Um, Cass usually has, like, a phone call with the person in advance just to kind of, like, talk about, like, what are the things you want out of this moment, this recording Um and like questions for us. We always give people space to ask us questions. Um, and I will always say during the interview, like, hey, if we touch on something that you don't want to talk about or something feels too raw, just let us know. We'll change directions. Like, you let us know if we've we've gone too far. Yeah. How are you finding your sources? Uh, a lot of it is probably how you find yours, just talking to people living in a place for a long time. You just meet a lot of people. Um, some people are from my previous reporting where they're just like stories have stuck with me. Uh, when we went to Kentucky for our reporting trip, um, Cass is from Kentucky. So we talked to people that was kind of based on geography, which was like, how many people can we talk to in four days in Kentucky yeah. <laughs> uh, to make this podcast? So that was kind of geog- like driven by geography. Um, yeah, just like how you find anybody else. We, social media is very helpful. Uh, seeing again, for seeing what people want to talk about. And, um, yeah, just keeping a list of people who are interesting or that we read a tiny little bit about somewhere or uh, they're nominated for an award but don't win it. Like, I think there's people, like, in, in that middle zone who are just hanging out waiting yeah, waiting for someone to say, like, hey, your story's really important. I'd love to listen. 
Is anything changing in the show, or are you going to kind of stick with the same style and format? I think, yeah, same style and format, um, more prep in advance. Yeah. Uh, to, so hopefully we can get our recordings down to like two, three hours instead of four. That's the goal. And um, I mean, we'll see how less crying goes. Uh, it, <laughs> I so would far, say don't, don't, don't pull too far don't, back okay. on that because it really is. It really is raw, and it's really. I think it's a really, really beautiful thing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm trying. It's it's bled over into my regular reporting, so now I'll be doing the news really report, and someone, news report. yeah, and someone will start crying, and I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to go there. I'm so sorry. Like, back it up, back it up. And because it's a news report, we don't we don't have to delve deep. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's totally affected all my other reporting. That's well. I mean, I think that's also just a sign of being like good at your job is that you can like know the right questions to ask to get to the core of what somebody's feeling and thinking Mm -hmm. because i think that's the scariest part to me about interviewing a lot of times is like you're constant it's like a fencing match you're constantly going in for the meat of the issue and someone's constantly swatting you away with some kind of, of of parry that's just leaving half the conversation on the table still. And so to be able to cut to something that's a, that's really the meat of the issue is, is going to be emotional. It's going to be vulnerable, but I think it's, it's really doing your job well, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. That's the goal is to ask just the right question in the right tone of voice and like right body language and all that stuff where people just feel really, really comfortable and maybe like it's a little bit less of a, of a fight back and forth and more of like collaboration, I think where you're saying like, here's the space. What do you, what do you want to talk about? And then just kind of like lean in and listen. And so that's also why we have an hour of tape we can't use because to get to that point, you need to explore all this other stuff and do that little bit of a fencing back and forth. Like what's comfortable, what, where's tension, all that kind of stuff. And then hopefully like hour three, right? (laughs) Yeah. You can just sit back and like collaborate a little bit more. Totally. Huh. Is there anything you thought you would talk about here that you didn't get to talk about? Ah, oh, right now. Um, let me think. Shout out to Cass for being so awesome <laughs> and uh, just being a great partner for this project. Uh, it's really, really awesome to work with a like minded woman. We've both had some challenging experiences in like newsrooms and so to have a positive space where we're both collaborating and yeah, we're also let's, actually yeah. let's dig into this for a yeah, minute because I, totally. I think this is a, an interesting subject is like have you worked with a partner on projects like this before N- not in a in such a loosely structured way yeah so i've done like you yeah, know like you're building it together yeah like we're way. building it together so like you know i've been assigned to projects with other people when i was younger like there was a long time where radio reporters were sent out with photographers and that's the way you made yeah. a radio story and so like building bonds with photographers or you get set out on a story with somebody and so like i've had good but working relationships. sharing duties we and weren't yeah and i think with Cass and just us both understanding like hey this is like maybe our fifth job today that we're doing right now of like all the different places we've worked today and all the different things we've picked up and put down and like just being really, uh, having a lot of compassion for each other, I think. So like when one of us just is at the end of our, like we just can't do this anymore. The other person can step in and say like, Hey, I got this. You take the week off. I'm going to sit down with this story and I'm going to come to you with a draft. Awesome. Um, and so you so, both edit, you both handle all of that. We're separating the duties a little bit more. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with 
our personalities. So like Cass is super outgoing. She can't even go to the grocery store without chatting up the person ringing her out and finding out their whole life story, right? And I am such an introvert. Like I just want to be there with those headphones, just like listening for hours and hours and hours. So the combination is very practical where she loves reaching out to people, having these initial conversations, explaining this weird show we do and why we're asking for all their time. Um, but when it comes to like sitting, sitting and editing four hours of tape, that's not her zone. Like that's yeah. not where she's happy. That's my happy place. Like that is like my the best thing in my world is when I can just sit and listen and edit. So I think our skills are very complementary in that way. And then um, so we're kind of separating the duties a little bit. But there's a lot we do together. Um, we usually get together every week during production cycle, spend the day together. Um, usually I come up with the first audio draft which might take like 15 hours, 10, 15 hours. Wow. Uh, just to figure out like what is the half hour here. Yeah. And piecing all together and moving the parts around. But then we come together to write the script and record. And then she actually does the mix. Cass is like an amazing audio engineer. So she, my mixes are fine. They are like totally fine for public radio, quick turnaround. But she can actually make like a beautiful mix. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like her, her secret talent. Awesome. Um, but working together has been really great. It's totally different. And, um, yeah, it's very nice to choose your collaborator. I've yeah. never had that opportunity before. Was that weird going in? Was there like an initial period of like getting to know each other, you know, the dogs sniffing each other, figuring each other out? <laughs> well, first of all, my actual dogs sniff her a lot. My dogs are like obsessed <laughs> with Cass. And so they come over and just like sniff her for hours. It's Super weird. I don't know why that is, but my dogs are just really obsessed with Cass. But uh, we spent – so before she moved here, we probably spent um, maybe like three months getting to know each other over like text or messaging, Instagram messaging. Because you'd already started this before you met her, right? I recorded one episode by myself. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, it was hard. Uh, and I would known Cass at that point. But like, you know, I was a little cautious, right? Like, here's my baby. Yeah. Who, who am I going to parent this with? Totally. Right? Like, who's my co-parent? And um, Cass just totally got it, you know? And we had similar viewpoints, and, like, her skills complemented mine. And, um, yeah, it was really good. It's interesting that she's, like, ten years younger than me, or maybe nine, so, like, there's some some age difference, which is kind of fun. Like, she brings, she's definitely much better at the social media and that yeah. kind of stuff and brings some, like, fun and, and like, light Well, I think that different perspectives from different ages is, I think when I think about like some of my favorite shows, there's like wide age ranges yeah. with the people that are hosting. Like I feel like that's what makes Radio Lab totally. such a great show is the huge age disparity between you know the two hosts. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it it really provides perspective. Yeah. On things. No, that's interesting. That's that's. Yeah. How did you guys meet again? Cass just reached out to me out of the blue. And, like, some people might not be super eager to help somebody out who's coming into their market, right? Uh, but I was just like, yes, another radio reporter. Yeah. Uh, so I was just super thrilled. We talked on the phone, um, got together for coffee, and that's kind of when we talked about this, like, let's make some better food media idea of, like, how can we contribute in a positive way? And, um, yeah, so that's how we met. She just completely reached out of, out of the blue, and awesome. I'm, I'm really glad she did. That's great. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming on and uh, yeah, telling us the story of Skillet. I think it's like, I think you guys are doing really incredible work and I hope it, it finds a huge audience because you certainly deserve it with this, with this show. 
Well, thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciate that. We love Dirty Spoon and just really love the chance to talk about what we do and reach your listeners. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you. That was Jen Nathan Orris, the founder and one of the hosts of the podcast Skillet. You can find their show wherever you get your podcasts, and I highly recommend that you do. Season two starts this month. The Dirty Spoon is brought to you by the Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years of farm-to-table food. The Marketplace always strives to bring you the best food grown by our neighbors. The Second Helping is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. Produce the show, write the music, mix and edit it, yada, yada, yada. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources the stories, and handles our webpage, Marketing and Development. Be sure to head to our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, to stream full episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, read stories from the show, see the incredible artwork from our contributing artists, and support us by subscribing to our Patreon. And don't miss new episodes on 103.7 WPVM, the first Friday of every month at 5 p.m., always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour.